This morning I want to uh, continue the exploration of ethical practice. We began that last time with looking more generally at the plays of ethics in our practice. We took the ethical precepts last time together. And for those here for the first time, all of the sessions here are recorded and are, avail- are available on the website uh, dharmaseed.org. So we explored um, in some depth this sense of living ethically. Really is about how do we live with integrity, particularly with the challenges of life, the difficulties, individual, relational, in our communities, in our world. How do we live a life of integrity? Lines from the Buddha from close to 2,600 years ago. One who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. And there can really be tremendous inspiration. I would, Last time, I particularly encouraged us to not take the ethical dimension of our lives uh, for granted. Sometimes we think, I'm basically, as my sister says, good human being, <laughs> good person, <laughs> you know, and, you know, I don't hurt others too much, and I don't lie and steal too much. I'm basically okay. You know, I'm here for meditation. <laughs> you know, I'm here for peace and bliss. Um, and those are, those are wonderful intentions, but last time I tried to suggest that the ethical dimension of our lives actually is one where there can be very deep practice. It's a challenging form. Traditionally, traditionally there was this close relationship between ethical practice, our meditation, and our cultivation of wisdom. Those are traditionally the three areas of training. And last time in particular, I tried to point to the ways that uh, ethical practice really is important in all the parts of our lives, and not just as we often think in my personal interactions, my face-to-face behavior. And I suggested that some of the ethical forms of practice at certain times in history actually involve our relationship to larger collective issues. We could imagine, you know, maybe being in the South in the 1940s or 50s, the ethical issue of racism and injustice might be very central for anyone living in that, in that time. And we could look at other ways that uh, the large-scale ethical issues really are very, very central. And I think that's true in our time. And this, but, but even in the time of the Buddha, the understanding of ethical practice, as I emphasized quite a bit last time, has a, uh, a larger dimension than the face-to-face behavior um, and really has to do with how we relate to all around us and how we relate to others' uh, behavior that might be harmful. From the Buddha also, non-harming is the distinguishing mark of Dhamma, or the path. Mm -hmm. To live a life of non-harming, and as I mentioned last time, he also understood that as not letting others harm. So it wasn't just what I do, but it's also what happens in my community and in in my world. An updated version of this from the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. This This is Thich Nhat Hanh's restatement of the first ethical precept, that of non harming. He goes on, I'm determined not to kill not to let others kill, 
and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. And so today I want to particularly connect this with our relation to the earth, to again this large issue that is right there for all of us, which is how do we relate to the uh, growing destruction of the uh, world, the world's ecosystems, and particularly related to climate change. I thought I'd read first some of the statement which I got from the Spirit Rock website about Earth Care Week. Earth Care Week is an opportunity to come together with our Sangha to both celebrate the natural world and address the major environmental issues of our time, including climate change. If our dharma is to leave nothing out, we must turn towards this difficult and important challenge. Facing the reality of climate change requires great compassion and calls on our deepest capacities to be with truth. Practicing together can reveal a path of compassion, energy, and even joy. We know from our own experience that meeting difficulty directly with wisdom and compassion naturally leads to skillful response. And so this morning, I want to talk about that, that ethical response and particularly focus on the issue of climate change, which I've talked about from time to time over the last few years. And I want to frame it in terms of the core teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So we could call this talk the Four Noble Truths <coughs> of Responding to Climate Change. Okay? And, uh, and it, it gives a, ha- uh, a, a valuable framework. The Four Noble Truths, probably most or all of you know, is the, perhaps the core teaching of the Buddha. And it's the, you know, he identified what he took to be four truths. The truth that there is suffering the truth that there is a cause of suffering, the truth that there is a way out of suffering, and and the fourth truth that there is a path to uh, transform suffering. We could say that the first two truths are about the nature and roots of suffering, and the third and fourth are about the nature and roots of freedom. This This is a core teaching. Interestingly, the original model of the Four Noble Truths, as far as I know from my study, actually was modeled after the typical kind of physician model for diagnosis in ancient India, which is very commonsensical. It's, what's the problem? What's the cause of the problem? What's the solution? And how do we get to the solution? It's a very simple way to see the Four, four Noble Truths. And there have been people who've applied the Four Noble Truths to uh, all sorts of issues in this way. Achan Buddhadasa, a number of people in Southeast Asia have sometimes taken the Four Noble Truths into, into a broader framework. So I want to talk about the Four Noble Truths of climate change. And I'll, I have a PowerPoint presentation. This is one of my early PowerPoint presentation Dharma talks. And so now I have to make it work. Okay. Okay. Uh, Kika, you might come and help me. Okay, we want to go, we want to, we didn't start right. So that's the first Yeah, that's not right. It should see, it should, it got reversed somehow. Oh, okay, no, it is, it is okay. Okay, so this this is an overview of the Four Noble Truths of uh, Responding to Climate Change. And I want to say that my presentation here, I'm really thankful to three people. Uh, one, of, one of the persons is Bob Doppelt, who's been really a key person, uh, really bringing together Dharma teachers around the issue of climate change based in Oregon. And he was very kind to let me use some of his slides 
uh, that he uses. And I've, I've taken a lot of them. Some of them I've modified slightly, but a lot of, this, a lot of the slides come from Bob. I've also benefited from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who has his own version of the Four Noble Truths related to climate change, which I've learned from a lot. My approach is somewhat different, but I've learned from him. And then I also want to thank uh, Sarah Shedler, who, uh, who I worked with for a number of years, who lives in Massachusetts now. And she worked for many years with uh, Friends of the Earth in San Francisco. And about four years ago, we, we did a day long, actually, in Santa Cruz on um, a whole day devoted to practice and climate change. And I have benefited from some of her insights as well and some of the material that we developed for, for that day. So we start with the first two truths, which is we, I can call here the bad news. This is the most serious issue facing us. Possibly a 3.5 Celsius temperature rise by 2035 and will increase all other problems. There is a huge gap, as we, most of us know, between the scientific reality, or what the scientists tell us is real, and the political response. We know that. Everyone is being and will be affected. We all will be dealing with this for the rest of our lives, and humans will deal with this for the next few hundred years. Okay. The good news, these are the third and fourth noble truths. Okay. Remember, in our practice, we often face the bad news first and then get to the good news. The good news is there's some cause for optimism. There is a great opportunity for transformation economically, ecologically, socially, and spiritually to a sustainable and just world. There's tremendous potential, and a lot of people are connecting the dots. Secondly, we actually have the knowledge, skills, and technology to reduce warming to manageable levels. It's actually, people know what to do. It's not actually that hard. It's politically hard. It's socially hard. It's not technically hard at all, although it would take a great mobilization. And third, tremendous progress is underway. Rapidive, pos rapid positive changes could occur with the right efforts. So I want to take us through the, uh, through the Four Noble Truths individually, and then we'll have some time for discussion. The first noble truth will be really to look honestly at the uh, nature of the problem. The first noble truth in our practice is to look carefully at the nature of suffering as it appears in our individual experience, in our relational experience, and in, in the world. So, and in the teaching of the Buddha, it was not just to examine the uh, different truths, but there were tasks that were connected with each of the truths. The Buddha said that the truth of suffering needs to be understood in a way embraced or entered into. Not easy to do that. We don't look at suffering from a distance, but we enter into it. And so here the realities of climate change must be, must be understood. So some of this will be familiar uh, to us, but for some of you probably some of this won't be familiar. So first, the basics of um, you know, the sort of physics of climate change. This is the so-called so greenhouse effect, where we have incoming solar radiation, and then there is a radiation out, uh, infrared ra radiation out from the surface of the Earth. And when there are greenhouse gases connected with more CO2 in the environment, those are absorbed. It's as simple as that. And the uh, infrared radiation is trapped in the Earth's atmosphere and then actually comes back to the Earth and the process accelerates. So it simply means that there, more of that radiation is trapped in the environment and the Earth gets warmer. It's as simple as that. It's not, not very profound physics. For the last 10,000 years, the Earth's temperature has been relatively stable. This stability has allowed civilization to develop. So you can see the uh, temperature being relatively stable you know, since the last ice age. There's a lot of detail in the diagram, 
but the basic picture is there's been relative, relative stability for the last 10,000 years, which is changing now. We are changing a 10,000 year pattern. And it's, we, we know, I think, that global temperature is correlated with CO2. When there's more CO2, there's more temperatures. And so you can see the uh, parts of CO2 and how it's been tremendously accelerating in the last 50 uh, years from relative stability. You, know, you, can, see, you can see the, the chart, CO2. Uh, and we, we're familiar with those numbers. We're familiar with numbers like 350 parts per million or 400 parts. Today, we're at over 400 and rising fast. This is most likely the highest concentration of carbon in 3 million years. And it's happened very, very quickly. Very large increase since World War II a total increase of close to one degree Celsius so far, um, with most of it in the last two decades. Emissions are up 61% since around 1990, a little bit after. So you can see these figures that we know from the papers of um, 2007, the second warmest year, 2008, the eighth warmest year, uh, 2010, tied for the warmest year uh, on record, and then 2012, the warmest year in US history. Things are changing uh, rapidly, and they're going in one direction. Here's an image of uh, Arctic uh, sea ice change between 1979 and 2007. Uh, 2007, roughly 39% less ice in the Arctic. This is a total uh, uh, area five times the United Kingdom has been lost in terms of ice. And again, it's not the sun or other non-human factors. Uh, virtually all scientists agree that this is attributed to human activity. Again, we, we know this, but there's, this is a graph of the uh, observed changes in surface temperature and the sun's energy output which shows um, that it's fairly constant, whereas the temperatures have not been so constant. Here's a, this is for uh, so-called climate deniers. This is uh, final proof that of, of global warming, showing the size of bathing suits leading to 2012. Again, uh, again, there is virtual consensus about virtually all of what I've mentioned so far. 90, some people say 95%, some say 97% of active climate scientists have agreement on all of this. So where is this, where is this leading? We have virt almost a one degree Celsius rise and the target aimed for by the various uh, climate, international climate organizations, is not to go above two degrees Celsius. But two degrees Celsius, which is the political figure around which there's agreement, is still very dangerous. There are already have been major impacts with less than one degree. So the politically, political agreement that people are sh aiming for is, is actually quite dangerous. One degree is safest, but now impossible. 1.5 may be the best target to aim for, as many people say. And here, again, there's a lot of detail here. You can start to see the impacts uh, at two degrees Celsius on various parts of our life, on water, ecosystems, food, uh, coastlines, health, and other other events, you can see that a lot of very serious events happen even up to two degrees. The line in the, in the uh, diagram is at 1.5, but you can see that uh, there is profound effect, as we know from, again, we don't know with uh, certainty about the drought in California, but we know that we're very vulnerable to droughts, and there's profound 
vulnerability around water, uh, different effects on the ecosystem. The food supply is extremely vulnerable in the world. You know, very, very vulnerable. And there are also in all sorts of health issues. There also are a number of uh, justice issues. We know that the effects of climate change are not born equally. Generally speaking, the people who cause the problem, the, the places that cause the problem, have way less effect than, the pe than other people in the world. And it generally has much more of an impact on what we call the global south. And so there are major, there are major issues of, of uh, justice and equity. And it's been increasingly a concern mentioned by, by many people. This, this figure is about deaths attributed to climate change. Look where the red colors are. That's where the most impact is, right? And you can see that that's uh, mostly in Africa. There's also a, a disproportionate effect of climate change on women. Oxfam said 85% of those who die from climate change related disasters are women who generally have uh, less uh, resources, less mobility, and less ability to deal with various issues like famine, flood, drought, and so forth. Limiting the rise to two degrees is very difficult. The key is cumulative emissions, not the rate of emissions, because CO2 stays in the atmosphere for 100 plus years. For a reasonable chance, the US must cut its emissions by 40% by next year, 70% <laughs> by 2020, and over 90% by 2030. And it must have, um, that, that must keep on for several decades. And yet global emissions are rising, not falling. And this is uh, the conclusion of myself and many other people that the only way to avoid this is getting a little bit towards the solution is to have mass mobilization. But some people say, why can't we absorb more heating? And this is the way that we are headed unless we make changes. Maybe we should have four degrees Celsius. Some of the effects of four degrees, people talk about that as hell on earth, the end of stable civilizations. There'd be the highest temperatures in 30 million years. Sea level rises, which would inundate most of the coastal cities, including San Francisco. Drought of 40% of inhabited land, and so forth. You can see this isn't really uh, plausible as anything that we can live with. Half of all known species ex extinct. Widespread illnesses, new illnesses, hundreds of millions of refugees, resource wars, and so forth. We are on the path to a rise of six degrees if we don't do anything. In other words, business as usual is going beyond hell on earth. On earth. Okay. So maybe just to breathe at this point. <laughs> it's a lot there. And we'll stay and look at some of the causes of climate change, but maybe um, calling up a little bit of the um, resources of the fourth noble truth, which is the path. A lot of our meditative resources can be extremely skillful working with the distress that comes from being aware of the situation, right? How many of you feel some kind of distress in your body, your, your hearts right now? Okay. Maybe just to name, maybe uh, just to name what's there, and uh, I'll use a technique that Joanna Macy teaches, and her work is a very important way to work with uh, any kind of distress. And one of the exercises, people say what they're experiencing, and we say together, "We hear you," because it's the, a lot, the isolation makes it harder. Does anyone want to just say what you what you're experiencing, maybe in a sentence? Just speak up. My heart hurts. My heart hurts. We hear you. I regret that I didn't do anything sooner. I regret that I didn't do anything sooner. Hear you. Fear of being a victim. 
fear of being a victim. We hear you. One or two more, if you wish. Fear for my children and grandchildren. Fear for my children and grandchildren. Look, please. I feel terrified as suitable for Halloween as terror, but then sort of frozen. Like. Mm-hmm. I feel some terror and also feel a frozen quality. Shock, we maybe. Yeah. We hear you. And so we'll come back to that, that practices to work with distress, with fear, with numbness, and so forth, are part of our toolbox. And people who actually know how to work with this have a very important role to play, and the meditative practices we do are very, very crucial. That's getting to the fourth noble truth. Hang in a little shorter visit with the second noble truth, the causes of climate change, and this will be, this will be brief, relatively brief, and it will be um, you know, my particular take on this, but a lot of people would agree. And then we'll talk about both outer causes of climate change and what we can talk about as inner causes of climate change, our attitudes, our, our behaviors. Okay. So several, several aspects of the second noble truth in relation to climate change. These are the, what we might call the collective causes of, of the suffering related to climate change. The first is related to the long-scale process that we could call the objectification and desacralization of the natural world, which permitted people to really take this view of the world as simply being stuff there to be used for our purposes. This is complex, but this was part of the causal chain, a very widespread view of, of the world as dead, basically, as simply there and there for us, right? Okay. Secondly, uh, dependency on fossil fuels, linked with the powerful role of fossil fuel corporations, and we could say very bluntly, the long-term economic plans of these fossil fuel corporations are not compatible with the survival of civilization. And that, some of you may know, an article that uh, Bill McKibben wrote in Rolling Stone, I uh, I think two years ago, either two years ago or one year ago, where he showed that the, that the long-term economic plans are, are based on extraction of certain resources, which if used, would take us way over the tipping point. That's what I mean by, by that statement. Then we have a consumerist, individualist culture with high levels of use of fossil fuels, including high consumptions of meat, which is very um, uh, energy uh, intensive converting grains into animal protein. Further collective causes, what we can call business as usual, free market or neoliberal economic system, including well-known staples, financial deregulation, free trade agreements, privatization and decline of the public sphere and public services, lowering of income and corporate taxes, cuts in public spending, all of this based on short-term profits rather than long-term economic stability, ecological sustainability, and economic justice. So the whole larger system of business as usual is connected with climate change and domination of political systems and mass media by corporations connected with business as usual. Lack of climate justice in relation to indigenous people, many people of color in the developed world, and the global south. As I mentioned earlier, those who caused, suffer didn't cause the problems. Those who caused the problems are impacted much less. So again, there's a lot there. And then we, what we can call certain inner causes of suffering related to climate change. And here we, we, we can go back to, remember, the Buddhist analysis of what the roots of suffering are, greed, hatred, and delusion. And we'll see some of these here. So we know that there's a high level of greed. Uh, we can see that in some of the businesses and corporations, financial institutions, and also to some extent with all of us, some kind of attachment to certain comfort levels. One of the challenges about looking at the causes of climate change is that we are all implicated, right? It's not like it's just them. (laughs) 
Um, of course, some people are more responsible than others, but all of us are responsible. Secondly, uh, what we can call a certain amount of self-centeredness, privilege, and arrogance. Individual, national, social, racial, and cultural. Um, many countries and people living in a kind of self-centered and privileged bubble, unaware of other suffering, and hence lack of the natural empathy and compassion that arises when we actually know of people suffering. And you know, where I'm coming from, and certainly from, um, from Buddhist tradition, really believes in the ultimate goodness of people and the goodness of our hearts. But, and, but when we don't have the right information, those good hearts aren't impacted. And when we live in bubbles, not aware of suffering, nothing can occur. There's also a great deal of fear and anxiety among much of the populations, let's say in the U.S., among poor and working and middle classes, over economic security, housing, terrorism, and so forth. And then there's a certain amount also of uh, ignorance and denial, which we could group under a number of headings, apathy, distraction, you know, being preoccupied with all sorts of whatever, whatever we're preoccupied with. The Giants getting into the, the championship series. Yay! <laughs> so. <laughs> it, it's not hard for me to notice. I, after the great, you know, the climate march in Washington, I compared. It was, you know, it was on a Sunday, and I compared the number of inches in the San Francisco Chronicle devoted to the climate march as compared to the um, 49ers game. And what do you, the ratio is probably like 40 to 1 or something, you know, in terms of number of inches. And again, uh, complex, but there is, distraction is real. <laughs> and again, uh, skepticism and then denial, you know, still a very large percentage of people believing that global warming actually isn't happening, right? And um, so denial is a very powerful part of things, and in a way, we all know, I think probably in a way, what I gave to you in terms of what's actually happening probably isn't totally new to you, but somehow we don't act on it. And we continue to, including myself, as much as I'd want to. We live in a kind of a bubble, right? So denial is a very important aspect of all this, and denial can be worked with and cut through. Now we get to the solutions. A lot of work on climate change ends with the first two truths, which I think is not so uplifting. And here we want to go to the third and fourth truth, which really looks at the possibilities. So the third noble truth is the possibility of a sustainable and more just, wise, and compassionate world if the roots of climate change suffering are addressed and transformed. This is very much following the third noble truth in traditional practice, which is that a deep peace and freedom is possible. And that actually accessing that deep peace and freedom, I think, is very crucial for addressing climate change. Because we need somehow very uh, powerful spiritual resources to be with the situation. And so the um, spiritual practices, really, of all traditions I think will play a very important role. So it is important to have a kind of vision that in a way this is humanity's greatest challenge. We need to somehow cut 70% of emissions by 2020. Some people have said this means 8 to 10% a year in the West. And it's possible to do. We can do this by making large cuts in energy use um, and emissions versus a number of different means. And it's uh, very helpful to know that a number of other countries have been moving in this direction. For example, many of you probably know that Germany has uh, gone 10 years ago from having 6% of its electricity use be based on renewables to 25% in one year. The US is at 4%. Right? And I think in one period of time, I forget, they, they were getting in one particular month or something, I think they were getting 
of their electricity from renewables. There's been a rapid change. It's possible, this is the second point, to increase clean renewable energy very, very quickly. Germany has sh shown that can be done. You know? And to include, increase what's called sequestration, which is the trapping of carbon in, essentially, in plants, forest, agriculture, and possible, possibly what's called geoengineering. That's controversial. But um, anyway, these would have to be the ways that things occur. And we also have to build what's called the, the capacity for resilience. So this is the, the vision <coughs> of where we go. So somehow, we have to, in terms of the path of practice, increase wise view, compassion, and skillful action faster than the increase in dukkha. We have, the, as I mentioned, we have the knowledge, the skills, the technologies to, to have this work. That's so, again, there is a vision that's very, very hopeful here. And applying these practices and moving to uh, use these technologies will have all sorts of benefit to live in an ecological way. We'll have tremendous uh, number of, of benefits, really, to come to a sustainable world. There's the thermometer, 1.5. And large changes could occur rapidly if enough people shift their perspective. Really see if widely promoted cultural narratives increase dis dissonance with the current practices and if there could be more efficacy and benefits. So again, here at Spirit Rock, the building is uh, making Spirit Rock completely self-sufficient in terms of energy. Right? That's part of the plan. What would this be like if all new building occurred like that? As I mentioned, there are, whoops, there are countries where this is happening. Um, there's also the potential to move to a more just world. That there's the opportunity at this time, in large part because the business as usual is not compatible with addressing climate change, there's the potential to move to a different and more just economic system. And to really, uh, it would take a significant movement but to actually have an economic system that was based more in uh, local, just, sustainable ways of doing economics. So it's actually a chance for people to really move to a whole different way of doing economics that's based much more in justice, particularly in the context of the whole world. really is in part about having more local power and less power by uh, international corporations. So for example, it's actually happening in many places that many, pla many municipalities are actually taking back their energy and demanding clean energy. It's happening in a number of places in the US, much through Europe. I think, I don't know if most of the cities in Germany have, are using, have their own local energy grids. I know people in Berkeley, I, I, I do work with the Berkeley Climate Action Coalition, and people in Berkeley are researching this. Some of this happened already in Marin in the last few years. It's really changing the whole nature of how we get energy. Um, and so there's a lot that's hopeful. Okay, now, ready for the fourth noble truth? I don't have a slide for that. But, but the uh, fourth noble truth is what is the path of transformation? And I've divided this into uh, personal and individual changes, uh, community and local changes, and then national and international, uh, maybe steps to take. Okay? So uh, personally, the, again, the, I think the meditative tools that we cultivate are very, very crucial for the long term that to have uh, the ability to be with difficult situations, to be even with conflicts, with compassion and wisdom and skill, is very crucial. So for us, 
What are the steps we take? We can, we can first of all develop understanding. We can understand more the problem and the roots of the problem. We can study more. We can understand the necessity to move to, uh, to follow the vision of a sustainable and uh, more just world. We can really follow that vision. We can um, develop more of our sense of the interdependence of my actions and what happens in the world. So the place of cultivating wisdom and understanding is very central. This is from a statement that I was, that came from uh, a group, an international group of Dharma teachers that I was part of, that we, we had a statement that was uh, put out um, around the beginning of the year. And this is from that statement. From this point forward in history, we must all acknowledge not only the external causes of climate change, but also the internal mental drivers as well and their consequences. To be wise, we must also individually and as a society adopt the firm intention to do whatever is necessary, no matter what the cost, to reduce the climate crisis to manageable levels and over time stabilize the climate. So part of wise understanding is clarity of intention. And then there's the ethical training uh, in particular where we, our ethical commitment is to respond to harm, to do less harm ourselves and to respond to harm and suffering in the world, to have that come out of uh, compassion. Again, from the Dharma teacher's statement, we need to make a firm moral commitment to adopt ways of living that protect the environment and help restore the Earth's ecosystem and living organisms. And there are all sorts of personal actions. That's why I gave the handout that has numerous ways that one can uh, in one's own household, with one's own consumption, make changes. There's also the training in meditation. Remember the traditional trainings are in wisdom and understanding first, in ethics and in meditation. And again, I think that training in meditation is something that we can actually offer those in the larger uh, movement to address climate change because the qualities or the capacities of mindfulness equanimity, patience, working with difficult emotions are all invaluable. And they're, they're particularly capacities that we've all cultivated. And so there's a very important role in sharing those. We, kn we know that without training, uh, it's very difficult. Without training in those areas, so there's a very crucial role there and we can do that both individually and also there are these wonderful group forms for working with challenges that Joanna Macy and others have developed. One of the best books to read, if you want to read one book, is called Active Hope by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone. It's in the bookstore. How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Very beautiful book. And Joanna is 85 now. Study with her. Go work with her um, soon, right away. <laughs> She's wonderful. She sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock. What can we do on a local basis? There are all sorts of things we can do with the local Sangha. You know, I think of the, you know, the, the large-scale changes are in a way are the most difficult, right? The political, the working on the level of the larger economy, those are harder there's tremendous impact possible at the personal and local level that everyone can do. That actually can happen often very quickly. And that doesn't solve the problem fully, but it goes hand in hand with the others, with the, with the larger scale issues. So there's all sorts of things we can do. We can uh, you know, have study groups that are local. We can be in or local organizations. We can work with our local governments. I'm very pleased to go to the Berkeley meetings, and there are people, the mayor has come, there are people from the city of Berkeley government who go to all the meetings, you know, and it's right there. And uh, there, you know, if you want to look, there's a, there's a website for the Berkeley Climate Action Coalition that I think the UN said if every city in the world, in the country did this, it'd be tremendously um, uh, helpful.
And so there are options locally, you know, in one's community, with one's family, and so forth. Um, this is from the uh, Dharma teacher's statement. Buddhists can join with others in their sanghas, and our sanghas can join hands and hearts with other religious and spiritual traditions, as well as secular movements. In this way, we will support each other as we make the next necessary shifts in perspectives, lifestyles, and economic and institutional systems. History shows that with concerted, unified, collective effort, changes that at one time seemed impossible have time and time again come to pass. That's very helpful. That's part of the vision. We know that at one time the Soviet Union was thought to be continuing for another hundred years. It fell very quickly. South Africa, apartheid, there are a lot of examples of that. Things can happen uh, very, very quickly. So all sorts of local and community things, having workshops, you know, sharing your knowledge, you know, working in all sorts of areas, community agriculture, all sorts of things are called for. And I think probably there are places for all of our gifts, right? It's not like everyone has to do everything, but we just see where we can help, you know, and see what could be helpful. Um, one, uh, one statement that I, that I appreciated a lot was from Bill McKibben, who's one of the main leaders in, in climate work, as most of you know. And he said that um, if 15% of the population get it totally together with recycling and their own personal energy use, nothing will change. But if those same 15% become active, everything will change. And some people think it's even less. I've heard figures that said that the American Revolution occurred with 3.5% people very active. And there's been studies connected with Stanford which said that if 7% of the population really gets mobilized, major change can occur. So the question is, will I be part of that 7%? And it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time. You know, I found it helpful to quantify it and say, do I have two to four hours a week, something like that, to devote to this? That's, I think, if, if 7% of the population have two to four hours a week, I think it will happen. That's not so much, right? Maybe it means going to one less movie. Does that make it easier? <laughs> Still go to movies. <laughs> and so the national and international level, as I mentioned, is the hardest, but that's where this larger um, mobilization is necessary. So it could be to coordinate with different groups, be connect with local groups that are working on climate change. Uh, there's a special value for interfaith groups. There was a lot that happened in uh, New York with interfaith groups uh, September 22nd. Um, all sorts of possibilities of taking firm stands in relationship to investments in fossil fuel companies. You know, there's, so there's there's a term, divest and reinvest, which has to do, where do I put my money? There's a lot that can be done there. Where's my money? Where's my institution's money? Where's Spirits Rock's money? Where's my college's money, right? And because I think there was a turning point and people saw that the economic plans of the fossil fuel corporations are incompatible with resolving these issues. It's, a, it's really as simple as that. And so those are very effective. One could work politically for certain candidates, helping to change the story, work on education, work on different ways of understanding, and so forth. Again, from a technical point of view, the changes that are necessary are not hard. What's necessary is the, uh, as, as in, seems to be, having enough people who are willing to respond, be verbal, get out there, and commit to that change. And make what actually could happen tomorrow, if there was political will, happen. And countries can turn around. One, you know, one of the people who uh, wrote about, who writes a lot about this, Lester Brown, who has very clear solutions. You know, they're right there in books. You can, um, he says, well, there are different, different scenarios. One of them is 
to have something like a sense of what this country did after Pearl Harbor, which was total mobilization, where everyone felt important to be involved. Right? And things did change. Things happened. All sorts of things happened. That may be what's necessary. So the question is, what's one's part in this? And I'll, I'll finish with three uh, quotations from, uh, from Buddhist teachers. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who has been very, very active and wonderful to be a um, colleague with, with, with him on, on the, in the climate group. He says, if we let our hearts be stirred by compassion, we will see that we have no choice but to act to solve climate change and to act in ways that will truly make a difference and determine our future destiny. And then secondly, Joanna Macy. This is from the book Act of Hope. What's catching on is commitment to act for the sake of life on earth, as well as the vision, courage, and solidarity to do so. And lastly, from the Dalai Lama. And, uh, I was, many of you know Heather Sunberg, who just came back from India a few days ago, and she had two opportunities to study with the Dalai Lama. She said she would be with him. I think it's okay to say this, and just be crying. But he brought together this uh, deep inner development with the deep commitment to the world. And this is, I'll end with this. And then we can have some questions. We can keep, we can keep recording with the questions. But we, wait, yeah, let's use the mic. So the Dalai Lama, this small blue planet is our only home. If we do not respect it, the entire planet and billions and billions of species will be affected. This is a question of life, a question of survival for the entire planet. We need full cooperation based on a clear realization that we are all one. Each and every individual's future depends on the entire humanity, especially right now. So we have some time for any reflections or observations or questions, um, and we'll use the microphone. Thank you for your attention. Appreciate uh, that. Maybe a lot of you already know there's a very good group called 350.org in Marin, <clears throat> and yeah. they need more people. And elect Larry Bragman. He's all of this. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, there one of the handouts does have a lot of... Uh, uh, groups listed, websites, talks, connection with our meditation practice and so forth are on that resource list, which is also, I, I posted it on the um, Spirit Rug website under, under my name, as on the teacher page. So if you want to uh, share that with others, they could download it. Yeah. Hi, I'd like to um, inform the Sangha that today at the San Rafael Theater, there is a movie at 2.30 called um, Racing to Zero. And it's talking about what San Francisco has done as far as trying to get everything recycled and composted, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, this, this area um, actually can be a model, you know, as, as Germany is a model in many ways. Um, we can be a model and things go east, the wind blows east. <laughs> and we know, and all sorts of cultural changes have already started in California. Why not this one? Um, please, in the back. Hi, I'm Mary. I just wanted to encourage all of you to investigate the National Citizens Climate Lobby, citizensclimatelobby.org. We are a vast, rapidly growing national organization of citizen volunteers who are teaching ourselves how to lobby and uh, meet with and develop relationships with our members of Congress in every congressional district in the country. Those of us in the Bay Area are kind of lucky. We live in this embarrassment of riches, mm -hmm. so we're preaching to the choir when we preach to our own congressional representatives. But what we are doing actively in all the Bay Area chapters is developing chapters of the Citizens Climate Lobby in conservative Republican districts in the Central Valley, because this is not a partisan issue, as we all know. 
but our belief is that as citizen activists, we can transform the political leadership. We will make it happen. For example, every member of Congress assumes that for every letter they get in their office, there are 10,000 people in their district who have that same belief. So we believe it's really uh, a, a very transformative way to active regular citizens like us meet in Washington with every member of Congress every year and develop these kinds of relationships at that level. So it's both our own personal transformation. Mm -hmm. I've never lobbied in Congress until this year. And a, and a political one as well. Mm. So I encourage you. you to check out CCL. And I'll just add that um, this theme is very, as you know, very dear to Sylvia's heart, that when some of her first mm -hmm. teaching at Spirit Rock uh, was to uh, develop a series um, called Citizenship as Spiritual Practice. Anyone go to that? Yeah, it was a while ago, uh, but that's, that's she says that's, that's really uh, how she was brought up, actually. Other questions, comments? Also just, again, we could stay with the experiential level if you'd like to, just what one's feelings are. Yeah. Um, though I live in Tiburon at this moment, my family, I'm from Louisiana, my family's all there, and I'm moving back to Louisiana. Yeah. Where oil is king. You know, most of the politicians are, you know, in the pockets of the big oil companies. So, um, and, you know, people barely recycle. Um, so much less compost, much less. Yeah. Um, there is some solar there, but, you know, it's few and far between. So I guess, first of all, maybe um, I'm asking for um, some love and light coming my way so that I, I mean, my beliefs are very, very strong in this. And... Um, you know, not to feel that uh, kind of um, disgust that I, you know, rather to feel compassion for people who yeah. either live in this ignorance or greed. There's a lot of both. Um, I know there must be pockets of, of people who feel very differently. Uh, if anybody knows of any of those pockets, <laughs> um, please let me know. Uh, or if maybe the national organization, you know, there's some way that I can... Um, are you sure? <laughs> what what part right. of Louisiana? <laughs> what part of Louisiana? Yeah. Uh, I'll, we'll be moving to New Orleans. New Orleans. So there are some very good people there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's very good people in New Orleans and um, yeah, around Tulane, I think, as well. Yeah. So so I think a key thing is to um, stay connected. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, you can stay connected to people in the Bay Area. So not to feel isolated. Uh, mm -hmm. Joanna Macy has a wonderful phrase. She says it's really necessary in difficult times to have rough weather networks. It's a beautiful term. Mm -hmm. And to um, really stay connected, and that can be inspiring. And know, you know, and know that it's, it's long-term, but that, the, you know, that uh, uh, you know, denial and so forth can evaporate in a short time mm -hmm. when the moment is right. You know? And you know, there are a lot of people also in, you know, who you know, particularly related to Katrina, who have seen a lot of these forces up close and have been educated. Right. Right, because a lot of what I talked about in terms of the economics were very true. You know, that, you know, what happened there um, seems related to climate change, also related to decline in public infrastructure very much. Yeah, very much. It was very much a political and yeah. um, social disaster, probably more than climate more, change. More than, more than a natural disaster, yeah. more a social political disaster, right? Right, right. So main thing is, I think, stay connected and there will be uh, plenty of people to connect with there. Thank you. And, and work with any, uh, and, and um, yeah, keep doing your meta for difficult people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because that's, again, that's something I think we really bring here. Uh, it's possible to, to uh, be firm and oppose certain policies and even institutions, but to do so with, with a sense of care and compassion without demonizing. Something very valuable, you know, when things get more intense, a very strong tendency to polarize. And our practice is, you know, we, we had a number of sessions uh, in, I think, uh, July and August on how to work with difficult circumstances, including uh, looking into tendencies to polarize. You know, very interesting. And I remember doing 
a group of us did a retreat once at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we actually met with the nuclear scientists who were developing nuclear weapons and talked with them and tried to be, actually meet them as human beings in an empathic way. Not everyone in our group could do that, but it was very interesting. And I think, you know, that's, that's a big part of things too. It's to take that as your practice. To what extent are you writing them off or polarizing or judging them or demonizing them while being very firm? And we have models for that, you know, both in Buddhist tradition, people like Dr. King and, and so forth. Yeah. I yeah. have the microphone. Now. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah. uh, as long as Larry Bragman has been mentioned, I'd like to echo that recommendation to elect Larry to the Marin Municipal Water District Board. Um, Larry gets it in terms of he has a comprehensive understanding of energy conservation and water conservation. Um, this is a rare opportunity. This has been an entrenched board, and this is a superior candidate. You get to vote for Larry if you live here in the San Geronimo Valley or uh, Fairfax, Ross, Kentfield, San Anselmo. Thanks. Maybe uh, last comment, and I thought I'd also, um, a, a book that just came out is one of the best. If you want to, again, read a single book to be informed about the different aspects of climate, this just came out. It's called Naomi Klein, This Changes Everything. And um, very informative. Uh, please. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to say that um, I'm a little uncomfortable with the politicking uh, within this room, and um, I don't agree with it. Um, I would suggest that Liza Cross is the true environmentalist at Marin Municipal Water Board. <laughs> and so. That is where a lot of the contention starts. Right, so uh, how do we hold that with our practice, right? I think, I think that challenge will be much less difficult than future challenges. How do, we work, how do we work with that? People have different views, even going, they think, for the same ends, right? How do you work with that? This is what our practice can really offer, right? And so, not easy. We always are getting lost and finding ourselves, right? But um, this, I think this is particularly, uh, there's particularly a set of resources, you know, when we look to the, what I was calling the fourth noble truth, which is the path. There are tre these tremendous inner resources and resources of understanding which we want to keep developing, you know, so we can work with, um, work with that. Yeah, we don't generally, uh, yeah, we, we want to be careful. Certainly I, as a teacher, don't make uh, political endorsements, right? Uh, and so we, we want to, how can we uh, talk about this as a community? So that's, again, that's wonderful practice, and we can do that. How can we, the key is really to, be empathic and to know where people are coming from at their best and connect there. And even, I think, the people, many, many of the people who might be heads of the fossil fuel corporations, actually, if you go in there, this is what I found working with the nuclear scientists or talking with them, there's some kernel which is actually has intention that, that are quite good that we can connect with. That's extremely advanced practice in this instance, but the idea is to um, watch the tendency in a difficult time to be reactive, to blame, to judge, and yet how do we still act in a strong and firm way? That's, I think that may be the koan of our times, right? It's a way to say it. The, it's kind of the question of our times. How do we do that so that we don't we don't lose our humanity in trying to save humanity. Right? So that's really the koan, the challenge. So let's end by inviting ourselves to see what, what is the intention that's there for you? What one intention do you have at the end of this morning session? might be not even related to the talk. Maybe something was sparked. That's important for you.
What's your intention? So I'll finish with the dedication of merit, traditional practice. The Dalai Lama says, we need full cooperation based on the clear realization that we are all one. May our time together be of benefit to everyone, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.